Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Who is worse off, the oppressor or the oppressed? Is the power wielded by kings and empires real? Is a king of humble origins better than an old fool on the throne? What does Ecclesiastes have to do with Judas Iscariot or New Testament questions dealing with works of the law and grace? Is there any way to salvage the vanity of man's striving after win? What does all this have to do with the invention of the automatic dishwasher? For answers to these compelling questions and more, stay tuned for this week's episode of The Bible as Literature. You're listening to The Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 74 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we talk often about Paul's use of this expression, the present evil age. And of course, in the Gospels, Jesus talks a lot about this adulterous and sinful generation. People want to point and say which age or which generation he's talking about. But there's something timeless about the expression. Age isn't synonymous with generation. Age can be since Adam. And in a text like Ecclesiastes, where we are explicitly informed that nothing changes under the sun and that what has been is what will be, I think it's fair to assume when Paul draws on Ecclesiastes to present this metaphor of the present evil age, that we're talking about something that's timeless and applies across the generations. And I think in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, it's striking that when the preacher talks about the oppressed, he creates yet another dichotomy or illustrates another dichotomy of these people who are the victims of power and how horrible their situation is and how terrible it is. But then he turns around and says the one who has power is just as bad off as the ones who are oppressed. And so when he creates that dichotomy, he's actually not criticizing the powerful or trying to defend the oppressed. He's talking about the stupidity and the foolishness of those who imagine that there's a difference. It's very interesting. The human response to being poor is often, I want to be rich. For the weak to say, I want to be powerful. For those who are oppressed, saying, I want to be in the position of the other guy who can be the oppressor. If I had his kind of power, I would not be like that. This is the human way of thinking. What would it be like if I were the oppressor, if I were the rich, if I were the powerful? But this is the problem because what the preacher is trying to bring out is that even when you are rich, even when you are an oppressor, even when you are powerful, you're going to the same grave as the person who is oppressed. Don't assume that the oppressor has a much more decent life than you. But this is the sin that people imagine that the power of empire is real. They imagine that the power of the king or of the state is real. They imagine that the power of the oppressor is real. Paul in the New Testament, and I think in doing so he is reflecting the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, is dismissive of Roman power. 
When he says just to bow down to Roman power, he says it in the spirit that it's irrelevant anyways. It's only relevance, like everything in the hand of the Lord, is that it serves a specific purpose in a specific moment, but don't believe it has relevance beyond the one who holds it in the palm of his hand. That's the key. Because the real power in Scripture is always to the invisible God. And it's important to stress his invisibility, that you can't see him. Because that is the only way that Scripture can demonstrate to you that what God is, whatever God is, and that's even a difficult statement to make because there's no form of the verb to be in Hebrew. But as a matter of convenience, what God is, is something utterly different and incomprehensible to the human perspective. So let's read through chapter Mm 4 and reflect on this question of the vanity of power. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Now, we have the dichotomy set up between the oppressed and the oppressors, and he felt bad for the people who were oppressed, But then this last one, on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Is he repeating what he's saying about the oppressed? Or is he saying that he pities the oppressors as much as the oppressed? It seems to me that because it's talking about the oppressors in the second half of the verse, that he pities both the oppressed and the oppressor because life is going to be miserable for both of them. So I congratulated the dead, who are already dead more than the living, who are still living. So... Congratulations, dead. You no longer have to suffer like living people. Whether oppressed or oppressor, you no longer have to go through what they have to go through. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. And Jesus quotes this verse indirectly, or at least draws upon this wisdom when he talks about Judas Iscariot, who, by the way, is a metaphor for the religious community. He's not an individual per se, but, you know, Judas is Judah, Judea. But he says, you know, it would be better to not have been born than to be party to the suppression. Yeah, he sets up a hierarchy. The worst off is people who are alive because they're naturally going to suffer and there's no one to comfort them. The next best is the dead because they no longer have to go through this. The best are the ones who have never existed because they never even had to know that this happens. But when you read Judas in the light of this text, you can see that even in his condemnation of Judas... Jesus is showing mercy because he's saying, look, I pity you that you had to go through this, that you had to be the oppressor just as much as it stinks for me to be the oppressed. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. You know, human beings, the reason why we get ahead in the world is because we got to get ahead of so-and-so and get ahead of the other person and make sure that we're constantly going forward and constantly comparing ourselves to others. It's so funny because this is so countercultural to our own capitalistic view of things. Capitalism is based on competition. Here's he says, competition is vanity and striving after wind because ultimately what gains will you make? You're going to die. And we already read in the previous chapters that whatever you make, whatever you succeed in, whatever you gain, it's going to be given on to a foolish generation. You're a fool, we read in the next verse, because the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. On the one hand, it says every labor and every skill which you have done is vanity and striving after wind. But then it says the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. If you're working, you're striving after wind. If you fold your hands, you're a fool. So 
He sticks every person where you're not in a good position. There's no way to make progress. There's no way to be better. Again, I keep going back to Paul because when Paul says to the assembly, you can't earn the kingdom, the immediate reaction is, well, then I'm just going to sit back and fold my hands. Well, no, that's stupid too. And so that leaves you breathless. Okay, then what am I supposed to do, Paul? That's kind of that's the same dynamic here. You get stuck. Yes. The human being gets stuck. And that's what I think is great about this literature is like, well, I can't win. Exactly. Now we're on to something. Now we're on to something. You can't, you can't win. win. So what do you do? It reminds me of when I was on Mount Athos and they didn't have screens on the windows. And I had mosquitoes coming into my room. But it was so hot in the room that I didn't want to have the sheet on me. But if I didn't have the sheet on me, then the mosquitoes would eat me. So then I'd put the sheet on top of me. And then I would get too hot and I'd take the sheet off. So I told one of the monks that the next morning. And the monk said, so there's no solution. And I said, correct. And he said, it's amazing to see the weakness of a human being when a mosquito completely ruins his evening. So one handful of rest is better than two fistful of labor and striving after wind. It seems like in Ecclesiastes, he's always trying to say, okay, so how do we make the best of it? So it's better at least to rest a little bit than to just work your tail off for no reason. There is a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. So he wasn't working to help anybody out. There was nobody gaining from what he was doing. He was only working for himself. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches, and he never asked, and for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity, and it is a grievous task. So he's working, he's getting all this money, but he's making himself miserable to make a bunch of money. But, I mean, how many people in the United States today know this situation? You're making all this money, but you don't have any time or the ability to enjoy it. Or to spend time with your kids. And here I think it's difficult to understand this section without looking ahead a little bit to chapter 5, because he's starting to intimate a theme that will come out more as we proceed, and that is everything goes nowhere, but there is something to be said for fellowship in the present, and that that somehow is a gift from the Lord. So later on, he'll talk about laborers, how they sleep well, and they rejoice in, for lack of a better expression, in their daily bread. And this somehow is better than striving after vanity. It's not that you don't do work, but it is that your priorities are different and you focus really on this beautiful description of companionship that unfolds here. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. And again, it is our fourth episode discussing Ecclesiastes. And each episode, I think it's important to call to mind your observation from chapter one that in each of these moments of life what gives them value is to fill them with Torah and with love. That's what's going on here. So what's the difference between the one pursuing wealth and the one who is simply satisfied with companionship? When he falls, there's someone to lift him up. And when he lies down in verse 11, there's someone with him to keep him warm. He's not alone. That's what I find significant about these verses, where on the one hand, a man who works and has no one who's dependent on him, who's completely isolated, and he's just working for the sake of gaining more and more riches, it's vanity. He's saying, at least if you can work with somebody else, it can be tolerable. This is his impulse to try and fill life with some kind of meaning, and it's exactly what you're saying. Companionship at least can make you happy. Well, and I think here he is saying actually that the oppressed are better off than the powerful, going back to the opening verses of chapter 4. 
because if the oppressed can keep fellowship with each other, that's their victory over the oppressor. And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So what he's saying, again, is fellowship, community, brotherhood, mutuality. This is something that is of value, which is saying something in a book that's saying very little is of value. I won't go so far as to say companionship will give meaning to life, but at least it can make life tolerable. While you're striving after wind, you can at least enjoy yourself and be a little less miserable. I've lived with very poor people. I've spent time with refugees and that sort of thing. And one thing that can always make you happy is to have friends around. Even if all you have is coffee and popcorn, that's what you do to bring people together because it makes those miserable moments a little bit less miserable. I mean, we've seen this over and over again where someone who comes from the third world or the developing world, especially before he capitulates to the stupidity of individualism, or his children are consumed by the vanity of individualism, there's a kind of dignity that comes from a life of inconvenience and the opportunity for love that inconvenience creates. It's very important. I mean, you look at the dishwasher, the convenience of the dishwasher. Well, before there were dishwashers, people stood in the kitchen and talked to each other while they washed dishes. My grandmother said the way that she learned about boys was on Sundays at her grandmother's house washing dishes with her older cousins. That's how people learned about the world. That's how they learned about how human beings interact with each other. Well, and these conveniences that were developed by hardworking engineers, in principle, if they're used to create more opportunity to serve others, they're a blessing. But when the convenience becomes an opportunity to do nothing or to be self-serving, it's destructive. And the value of life before the dishwasher is that whether you were selfish or not, you had to do the dishes and you did them together because it was easier to do them together than to do them alone. This is why people from the third world, generally speaking, have a better chance at being people of dignity than people from the wealthy Western countries. For the Amish, the two big events that they have are barn raising, because the entire community has to get together in order to raise the barn and quilting because you need a whole group of people in order to get the work done. And it's more pleasurable if you have people together. Technology facilitates the lie of Plato's individual because if a machine can do the dishes for you, you start to think you don't need other people in the household, you can do it yourself. But the fact is your dependence on other people for fellowship has nothing to do with getting work done. It has to do with the fact that human beings rise above their nature in fellowship with others because it forces them to make themselves smaller. It's counterintuitive, but in making themselves smaller, they actually become greater. That is one of those fundamental truths of biblical wisdom that is completely lost on our generation. Even in the 1990s, when I was in Ukraine, I was living with a family, and this guy knew how to repair TVs. My family I lived with called him, said, will you come fix our TV? How much will it cost? And he says, you make me a nice dinner, a little bit of vodka, that's enough for me. And he was willing to do the work for the sake of fellowship. Look, for the 100 bucks or the 50 bucks you'd give him to do the work, he could go to a restaurant. But in exchange for going to a restaurant or buying something at Target, he gained an evening of fellowship. He gained new friends. He gained communion. I mean, what else is there under the sun? 
A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. This verse, in my mind, is just a way of expressing what we're trying to put our finger on, which is the value of poverty. And here I don't want to sound like a 19th century theologian who talks about the virtuous poor as an excuse for imperial oppression. That's not what I'm saying. There's no excuse for imperial oppression. I'm saying what the preacher is saying. We're not talking about causality. We're just talking about situation. The fact is that the poor, wise lad is of far better value than the foolish CEO who can no longer receive instruction. Well, it's a counterfactual anyway because we don't have poor, young kings. Uh, you know, it's completely hypothetical. All the kings that we have are old and foolish. But that's the beauty of the expression. Exactly. Because it's anti-kingly, as is the entire biblical tradition. Right. If we had some kind of king the opposite of what we had, then maybe we could have something decent. Well, and verse 14 makes your point because it says that he has come out of prison to become king even though he was born poor in his kingdom. So here, the folly of this whole scenario is that he was poor. He was oppressed. He was in prison. But it didn't do him any good because once he came to power, he became the true victim. Again, I do think chapter 4 is about how the ones who wield power are the true victims. And victim is the wrong word. They're not victims. They're fools because they do it to themselves. You're not a victim if you do it to yourself. You're an idiot if you do it to yourself. But more is the idiot who looks at power and imagines that the powerful are something when they are nothing. And here, as a disciple of the Apostle Paul, I want to stand on the top of the highest skyscraper with the biggest megaphone and just scream for people to hear, it's all an illusion. If you believe in the power of empire, if you believe in the power of wealth, the joke is on you. Because from the post-apocalyptic perspective, it's already gone. And then look what happens to this new young king. I have seen all the living under the sun thronged to the side of the second lad who replaces him. So what happens? You get a poor king, but everyone flocks to him saying, ooh, 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 here's the new king. And they treat him just like they treated the old king. And they, like I said in the beginning, don't understand that whether you're oppressed or whether you're an oppressor, you're both going to the dust. And there is no extra treat for the one who is the oppressor. There is no end to all the people, to all who are before them, and even the ones who will come later will not be happy with him, for this too is vanity and striving after wind. There is no happiness that's going to come from thronging to power, to fawning over power, to licking the boots of the powerful. Nothing good is going to come of that. Well, and this is a veiled critique also of religion, because remember, when you think of religion in a modern context, you imagine that the state is something different than religion. But in the historical setting of this text, the king was your link to God, which meant the illusion of power was really essential for maintaining the illusion of divinity and continuity. The reason you have one king after another after another is because in nomadic societies which predate the city, you had one patriarch after another patriarch. This is the birth of religion because you linked God to permanence and so you create this illusion of permanence by replacing the patriarch or replacing the king every generation. Christian ideas of succession and continuity with the past by succession are deeply problematic scripturally because that means you are giving in to the illusion that man is God. But it's an illusion precisely because he's replaced. 
Man's days are as grass upon the earth. Like a flower of the field he flourishes. We used to read that psalm in church from the age of eight or nine. But the wind passes over it and it is gone and his place thereof knows him no more. That's what man is. So don't be fooled. Don't be fooled with the illusion of the kingship because this too is vanity and striving after wind. Thank you very much, Dr. Renton. Thank you very much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.